I was here with you in early spring. It was the last time I was here. And when I was here, I gave a teaching on the Brahma Viharas, which is the Pali word for the divine abodes of heart, or kind of enlightened states of heart. Think of them as the places that we would want our heart to live um, if conditions were ideal. And of course, they aren't always ideal. And so our hearts don't always live in loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, or equanimity. But there's a lot of potential for that when we're not startled or frightened or confused that these awakened states of heart shine forth naturally. What I didn't know when I gave you that teaching early last spring was that I wasn't going to stop giving that teaching. I've actually been teaching on that same topic ever since last March. And so tonight what I want to talk about a little more deeply is one of those flavors of the awakened states of heart, which is the heart of compassion, Uh, the heart that has enough wisdom to be able to open in the face of pain and struggle and challenge. So it's been a real joy for me this last season and and really this whole year since I've come back from studying and practicing in Asia to explore these teachings more deeply with many different communities. And what I've found is coming back from spending almost a year doing meditation practice and study mostly in India but also in Uh, Nepal and in Thailand was that for my own practice my heart came back around full circle when I started my meditation practice when I was 17 years old what was incredibly important to me was to be able to identify and be able to bear the amount of suffering that I carried in my life which was actually for a 17 year old I got my fair measure you know I had a lot of support and I had a lot of privilege, but I also had a tremendous amount of pain, which brought me to this practice young. And so this piece about being able to identify what's true about what hurts and how we're challenged and open to it with a heart that's really awake and alive and engaged, even when it's hard, was tremendously important to me. And then I did a whole cycle of practice involved, you know, long retreats and lots of study, um, huge amounts of service in the Dharma world. And this teaching about suffering and compassion has run a thread all the way through the last 20 years of practice and service. And then showing up in India and seeing how these widening circles Right? Because we have our own challenges, each one of us. Some of the, sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're emotional, sometimes they're the way that our minds just plague us with their thoughts and their stories and their beliefs. And then we see how that's also true in our families, with our friends. You know, if we pass around the talking stick in this community, we would see how it's true in our community how everybody's got their share of challenge and everybody has the potential to open their heart to that challenge, their own and everybody else's. And 
and our hearts open and close and contract and expand against the conditions of our lives. You know, and then for me, particularly with this last trip to Asia, uh, opening to that on a global level. And so the last time I was here, I shared about uh, the flood that hit the Indian Himalaya last summer in Ladakh and the impact of the loss of homes and the loss of farmland and the loss of lives, you know, and what that really feels like, you know, when we hear something in the world that is gone awry and our hearts start to vibrate with it. It's not theoretical anymore. It's not something that we can click a different screen and get something happy instead of the hard thing, but it's right there in us, in front of us and inside of us. And that's the heart that's big enough uh, to hold everything, that heart of compassion. So there was some way that it felt like a, a full circle this last year, which is why I've been teaching about it. So I hope that it's helpful for you. A formal definition of compassion. Compassion is really the, the heart that cares. And it's often defined as the heart that quivers in response to suffering. And I love that because it's physical, you know. It's not just emotional. It's not just what we think about it. But it's, it actually vibrates inside our embodied being. You know, and then having been truly touched by a challenge, our own or somebody else's, the wish to respond appropriately to relieve that suffering naturally arises. When we're not caught in our own defensive system or the way that we shut down or avoid or, or numb out, naturally this great compassion arises because it's inherent in every one of us. We all know that. You know, we've all seen or experienced or heard inspiring stories of tremendous challenge and one person's heart opening and their actions flowing out of that opening and how much impact that can have. One person. So then I look around at all of you and I think, wow, one person. Look, there's, you know, a hundred of us here. Huge potential in this room. So the heart of compassion is warm. It's caring, it's pliant, responsive, inclusive. And when I think of an image with it, the image that I've been using most recently, a traditional image, is the image of a tree. But I've been thinking of this tree as a great-grandmother weeping willow tree. So the, the branches hang all the way down. And I think of her in... Right, like a season like right now, full summer. So the canopy is as big as it's going to get with a weeping willow, which isn't huge because the nature of a weeping willow is that, you know, it moves down and, and, start, and actually covers the earth, right? And we can each sit under that weeping willow tree. And the traditional phrase is that a tree makes no distinction in the shade that it provides so too, the heart of compassion makes no distinction in the caring that it sends out. You know? So we can each sit under this tree in our own hearts. Um, and this time of year, the sun is hot. So we need the tree of compassion. And we each know what it's like to feel like we don't have permission to sit under that tree. 
We can't always sit there. So we fall into these states which masquerade as compassion. Traditionally, it's called the near enemy. Um, I think of it as a near miss. So one of the near misses that masquerades as compassion but isn't quite is the heart of pity. So it's the heart that cares, but because of conditions in that heart, there is a separation, a slight separation of, oh, I'm so sorry for you, as if you are different than me, and what's happening to you is not quite affecting me as much as it might without that space of separation. So there's still a caring. It's not like we messed up. It's a near miss. I think of a modern-day near-miss for the heart of compassion won't surprise any of you as the heart of codependence, which, again, cares very much, but instead of a slight separation between beings, it's actually more of a slight enmeshment, where we lose the importance of the relative reality that, um, you know, my heart can vibrate with your pain, but your pain is not, on a personal level, actually my pain. So when we get over-enmeshed and then we get lost uh, and then the heart gets overwhelmed and it shuts down and does all of its defensive patterns and then we're not connected anymore. We're not quite connected with ourselves or the other person. You know? So they're near miss. And we move back and forth with these near misses. It's not a problem. The opposite qualities of compassion, the far enemies, uh, states like anger, ill will, hatred. Those are no surprise. Another one I've added to the list of the opposite of compassion is numbness. The heart that can't feel anything at all. Because it shut down. Because it was too much. Because fill in the blank for your own situation. Right? And so it's really important, I think, to hold the heart of numbness as part of the process of the heart of compassion opening, right? And when I think of practicing with a numb heart, I always think of Ruth Denison. Do you know who she is? She's one of our Dharma elders, and she's in her late 80s now, and still teaching Dharma all the time. And she teaches on many things, but I always remember her teaching on numbness. She's originally from Germany, so I always hear the teaching in a German accent, which I can't do very well, but, but you'll get the idea. And so when somebody's working with the heart of numbness and they can't feel anything at all, you know, what do we do at that point? We tend to start judging ourselves. Why am I not caring? Why am I not feeling compassionate? Why am I not being a good Buddhist? Fill in your own blank. Um, she would just say, oh, don't worry about that. Just feel the numbness, darling. Feel the numbness. So every sentence ends with darling, with Ruth Benison. Just feel the numbness, darling. It's okay. This is part of it. You know, not separate from it, even though it looks so opposite. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the wisdom aspects of compassion, about why it's hard to practice compassion. And then a few very daily life compassion practices. And hopefully we'll have a bit of time at the end for you to add your own experience and wisdom about how you practice compassion in your daily life because we all do. We all do this. 
when the heart is grounded in wisdom about the way things are, it's much easier for it to open into compassion, and that's why I want to talk about some of the wisdom aspects. And the first one is, is directly this aspect of suffering and its causes. So there's, you know, the suffering of suffering itself. You know, when we struggle, it hurts. Uh, we all understand that. There is the suffering that when things change and we don't want them to change or they change too soon or the outcome isn't what we wanted it to be, then it hurts, right? And there's also the suffering of the tendencies that we have. And we all have these personality tendencies the same way we all have these bodies. They have their own little quirks and places that work well and don't work so well. Well, the same thing with our personalities. You can think about it as the way that we struggle with our own tendencies that tend to make us act out in ways that aren't so helpful for ourselves and others. And I was reading once again a few months ago that novel, uh, Shantaram. I'm sure some of you have read that, that great novel by Gregory David Roberts. And it's a novel about himself based on his own story. And um, he has a number of mishaps in his life, which lead him to do a lot of uh, drinking and using of drugs, which leads him to a jail sentence, which leads him to a jail break. That was obviously his choice, which led him to go to India and actually join the local culture there. He really went on a spiritual quest for, I think, meaning and redemption. He was living in one of the shanty towns where all of the houses were made of tin or cardboard, uh, very temporary housing. And he was talking with one of the elders in that community, and they were talking about the suffering in that community where fires would come through or the government would come through and shut them down and they'd have to take everything down and put it up again somewhere else. Very, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of pain in the community. A lot of beauty as well and a lot of comradeship. And this elder that he was talking to was talking about suffering and he said this simple little line that really caught my attention. It's a very long novel, close to a thousand pages, but he just said, you know, suffering is hungry. Suffering is hungry. So it's hungry and it starts to feed on itself. We get caught in these feedback loops where our heart can't open. You know, uh, we're hungry to become. We're hungry to become something else. Uh, and we're certainly hungry for comfort. You know, comfort on all levels, whether it's, you know, why are the sounds happening during the meditation, not so pleasant, uh, why is it so warm in here, on and on, just this constant adjusting to try to make things comfortable and okay. If we understand that process and how it's completely human, then our hearts can open to caring and say, oh, struggling again. You know, and you can look out at everybody else and realize, oh, not in it by myself. Everybody here is doing that same process all the time. All the time. And there's a lot of compassion available in that because we really get caught. Every single one of us, we really get caught. The second wisdom aspect of compassion is understanding impermanence. 
again, I keep marveling how these teachings, intellectually, they're so basic that a child can understand them. And, and I know this because I taught Dharma to children for years and years. And you sit down with a group of elementary kids and you tell them everything changes. And they'll say, yes, I grew an inch this year and my hair grew this long and my puppy did this. And, you know, uh, my best friend moved away. It changed. They know all about it, right? Intellectually, they can tell you what it is. But that's not quite it, is it? Because if it was just an intellectual understanding then why do we grab on so much? Why do we fight so hard? Why does it hurt so much? We would just let go. But we don't. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about parenting. And whether you're a parent or you have a grandkid or you've ever been around kids and you have a scenario where you're playing with a child and the child gets hurt and the whole world has just ended. The knee is bleeding, they're in hysterics, they can hardly breathe. And you say, oh, honey, stop, just take a breath, take a breath. We could only do that for ourselves, right? So much easier to do it for somebody else. Um, you know, we put a band-aid on it and we attend to the pain, their emotional pain, their physical pain. You know, but let's say it's a big injury, you know, and there's a lot of blood and et cetera, et cetera. We won't get too graphic here. Ten minutes later, that same kid is running around playing like nothing ever happened. They already let it go. They've got their band-aid. They're fine. But us as the adult, we're still vibrating with that. We're still worked up. We're still worried. We're still caught up in that thing. We haven't let the scenario of that pain pass away. We're still holding on. It's an interesting metaphor. I was reading... Uh, recently, the new uh, Inquiring Mind, which I'm sure, having been published in the East Bay, that many of you read. And I was very touched by the article by Martha K. Nelson. Maybe you read that one. She's a grief counselor. She's a local. Very grateful to her for reading this and or for to writing it and her candor. And she talks about struggling with grief and pain and change. And she was struggling with it over the death of her friend. Her friend's name was Stina. And a very sad story. She's 32 years old on her honeymoon, taking a hike with her husband. And they sat down to have a snack on a log. And the log somehow broke away from where it was sitting. And they fell down the hill. And... um, that accident actually killed her, you know, and it was over, you know, beginning her life, beginning a whole new section of her life, and, you know, the shock of change, right? She had this to say, she said, Stina's death keeps me at the edge of practice. It cuts straight through my so-called understanding that we all must die. She says, impermanence is a great little concept, but what happens when life smacks you upside the head with a two-by-four? Can we accept the truth of impermanence then? Experiencing the pain of change when you're knocked on your ass isn't the problem, she says. Accepting it is another matter entirely. Surely my resistance adds an extra layer of suffering, but what are you going to do? 
When the pure misery of loss comes calling, do we rail against what's happening or take several deep breaths and allow the pain? Dharma includes the practice of allowing pain. It's about breathing through it, leaning into it, softening enough to let it in, and staying soft as it rips your insides to shreds. That's real. She really told the truth of sitting in the fire of pain with an open heart, with an accepting heart, each breath an opportunity to soften a little more. Another wisdom aspect connected with compassion is understanding interdependence. And for me, in this moment, what that means is taking the opportunity to look around this room. And you might want to take the opportunity to just look around. You don't have to. But look around and see everybody here. And as you're looking, go ahead, just look around a little. Know that everyone here has challenge and everyone here has successes and joys and that really we're all in this together. It's not conceptual. It's an easy thing to say. But my question to you is, what is it that you can do to inspire your heart to open to that truth? Not conceptually, but viscerally. Everyone has a different story of their struggle and their joys. But underneath all the individual flavors, it's there. Um, And as we start to feel that, really, really feel that, how we all suffer, how we all want to be happy. Um, This understanding starts to rise. Oh, it's not so personal. And I heard another story recently about one of my favorite authors, um, Isabel Allende. And it really touched me, this story. And it, it brought me back to a story from the Buddhist time, which... Many of you will remember is the, is the story of the woman whose baby died, and she was in tremendous grief, just the grief that's indescribable. And the Buddha suggested to her that she could, you know, she wanted to get her baby back. You know, the way that we do, whether the baby is a piece of our own hearts that we've lost, or a physical baby or a part of our lives, or our identities that we've lost, our babies, and they're gone, right? And we want them back, because that's what we do, you know, when we're stuck and when we're, when we're hurting. And the Buddha suggested, well, why don't you go around to every house, and if you can bring me back a mustard seed, then I'll bring your baby back. And she said, great, I'll do it, no problem. Everybody has mustard seeds. But he said, no, no, there's one catch has to be a mustard seed from a household in which no one has ever died. And you know how the story ends. She couldn't find one. So Isabel hadn't heard this story about her before. It's a personal story. She had a daughter. Her daughter was 26 and was in, um, in a coma. And she was in the hospital with her daughter while her daughter was in the coma. And at one point, her grief overtook her. 
and she was walking down the hospital corridor and she fell to her knees. You know, it's the kind of pain that actually takes us out and brings us to our knees. This might be a strange thing to hope for, but I really hope that for all of us that have had that kind of pain in our lives, that level of pain, that we've each allowed it to bring us to our knees, metaphorically or literally, so that we can really feel it and really let it sing to us and move through us and pass out the other side. So she's on her knees in the hospital corridor, and an older man came by. Uh, she said he was from one of the local villages, and he was there with his wife, who was in the hospital. And she was just crying and crying, saying, why me? Why me? My daughter's so young. How can this be happening? Why? I love that she voiced that voice. Because every one of us has had something happen to us where the thought comes up, why me? And the way that we try to swallow it down and minimize it and be tough and all these things, she just let it pour out of her. Why? Why me? And this older man came by and he said, get up. And she just kind of grabbed on and said, no, my daughter, my daughter. He said, get up. Why me? And he looked at her and he said, why not you? Can you imagine? Why not you? He said, this happens to everybody, something. And she just woke up. She got up. She realized why not me? How many mothers have had this pain? How many fathers? You know, how many children have lost their parents? How many? Why me? Why not me? All in it together. So, this is hard, right? I mean, this is a sobering topic. Talk a little bit about why it's hard. I mean, fundamentally it's hard because of this process that we could call very simply selfing. You know, when, when we have a sense of self, which is an important thing to have on a personal relative level, that we have a healthy sense of self. But what happens with it is that it's constantly trying to protect and assert itself. And that makes it very complicated to open to what's true including open to the pain. Somebody from this group has loaned me one of your Dharma library books. And uh, the text is from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I just noticed this quote as I borrowed it a half an hour ago. Our self-centeredness our distinctive attachment to the feeling of an independent I works to inhibit our compassion. True compassion can only develop and grow in such as such self-grasping is reduced and eventually eliminated. So you notice it didn't say uh, as such self is reduced and eventually eliminated. It's a self-grasping. So even when we're enlightened, as the enlightenment process works through us, there's still a self, right? But there's nothing extra. There's no grasping. There's no holding. It's independent. 
stop clinging, right? Um, and then the heart could start to manifest more and more. Uh, one of the definitions I've heard of the heart and mind that's enlightening is that it's very hard to know whether somebody, how enlightened somebody is, and it's something that we like to speculate on endlessly in Dharma circles. I wonder how enlightened they are. Um, it's hard to know. But one thing that's important to check is, what's their response? How do they respond to the events of the world? Is there compassion? Compassion is is one of the manifestations of an awakening heart and mind. So a few flavors of why it's hard specifically to practice compassion. One is... The simple statement, it's too painful. You may have already, you know, felt that during this talk. Because I don't know what's going on with you today. I don't know what phone call you got this week or didn't get this week. Um, And so there might have been some moment, even just during this talk, where your heart shut down and you went, this is too painful. I don't want to hear this. And we do that. We do that, and it's normal. It's really, it's okay. So what we do, all kinds of different techniques. We try to separate out. We try to self-protect. Uh, all the different techniques we do, what? Numbing, avoidance. Uh, I have a defensive technique that I laughingly call the concrete bunker syndrome. It was very predominant when I was younger and new in practice. It was like there was this huge concrete bunker in front of my heart, and I just, that was it was very tough. It was very solid. Nothing can get through that thing. Um, why? I built it to save my heart for a time when I actually had the capacity to feel what needed to be felt. And that's what we do. We build these defenses out of deep, deep caring when we didn't have other tools available to ourselves. And then we carry them around with us for long periods of time in our lives until the moment when we suddenly realize, oh, maybe I could put that down. And maybe I could poke a window in the concrete bunker and see what's going on in there. So that's one version of what we do when it's too painful. The, the, uh, the opposite is that we get sucked in. Um, and that's really this merging without wisdom. You know, codependence in some ways is merging without wisdom. So it's another way. Another simple statement that comes up a lot is this question about compassion. I care, but what do I do? And so we look at the world and it's in, in, in as much distress as it always was or our families or whoever it is. I care, but what do I do? I was talking to a student a few months ago and she was talking about her profound compassion fatigue. She'd been caring for an ailing parent for many, many years. It was a long-term illness. And she turned on the news one day, and the news wasn't good because, you know, they don't tend to share with us the good news on most standard newscasts. And she just said, I I just had to turn it off. It was too much. I care so much, but I'm already doing everything I can for my mother. What what more can I do? Should I have compassion fatigue? I'm exhausted. You know, and what this leads to, of course, when we can't get out of our confusion or our overwhelm is, you know, we freeze up or we get indifferent, where we can't respond anymore. There's no flexibility. 
the pliancy of the mind disappears. There's a really interesting quote about this from His Holiness the Karmapa. And I studied with him last fall in Dharamsala, India. And he was teaching on the teaching of compassion. You know, so this is a young man who, like so many other Tibetans, made the trek over the Himalayas with what he was carrying on his back. Yes, you know, he could be called the second uh, leader under His Holiness the Dalai Lama, very important person in the Tibetan culture and, and in that tradition, and yet still he had to walk with what he's carrying on his back. Uh, he's dealing with incredible political pressure that's increasingly complex in his community. Um, he's got a lot of stress, you know, <laughs> um, and a lot of very hard decisions to make in the near future. And this is what he said, had to say about this question about, I care, but what do I do? in terms of a wider picture of how to have a compassionate response. He said, we may want to help, but we lack the patience to understand the situation fully and come in with our own ideas or personal agendas. When helping others, positive attitude and attention and intention must be combined with practicing the paramis or perfections of heart and favorable conditions are needed. So this is a really complex quote, but it holds the whole thing in it, and it fascinates me. I've been reflecting on this and practicing with this particular teaching for the last nine months. Um, and it's very relevant to a lot of different situations. This whole thing about there's something going on outside of us. And we really want to help. And so we come in with our own agendas. We haven't actually stopped and checked out the conditions fully. We do this over and over again. We do it uh, interpersonally. We do it on a community level. We do it on a national level. You know, this country is going to come in and help this country in Africa, and we know what to do. Do we? Do we? We want to help. That's wholesome. But maybe something more could be added. And this whole thing about positive attitude and intention, if we're clear about our intention, uh, then when we're practicing the perfections of heart, which, you know, include loving kindness and equanimity and integrity and truthfulness, um, all kinds of things, they have more power when our intention is clear about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And when we really start to tease out the part of ourselves that's helping somebody else uh, to feel self-important, Oh, that's the part we don't want to talk about. We'd rather focus on the part that really, really wants to help. But in fact, our intentions are often quite mixed. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the clearer we are, the less confused our response is. And this whole thing about favorable conditions are needed. Wow. We can have all the good intentions in the world, all the positive attitudes, respond perfectly, whatever that means. And if favorable conditions are not in play, it may still not work out whatever that means. That allows us a lot of space to let life happen and still care and still show up because then we know, oh, it's not that I made a mistake, it's not that everything's going wrong, it's not even that it's not fair, it's just favorable conditions are not in play. May they arise soon.
So I'll offer just a couple of daily life compassion practices because I want to leave some time for you to share your own. Last time I was here, I talked about the phrases of compassion, uh, some formal phrases that are used in meditation practice every day or on retreat. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. Not through the fix-it project. Through the caring. Can the caring be enough in this moment? So when we use phrases as a practice of intention, it's a practice of purification. So everything that inhibits us from having an open heart in the face of challenge comes up and we need it. It's a practice of collecting the attention around the caring heart. And there's focus there. The way I use those phrases in daily life is just the first one. If I can notice right away, oh, something going on that's challenging, I'm hurting, immediately the first thing that comes to mind for me is, I care. I care about this. And it's so simple. We can do it driving, walking, talking, in a conflict. It doesn't take a lot of time to remember. Just those two simple words. Oh, I'm in the middle of a situation that's really dicey and it's not going the way I wanted it to and uh, dot, 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 fill in the blank. What's really going on underneath it? I care. If I didn't care, I wouldn't be so uptight about what was going on. There's got to be some caring there. So it's something that you can just drop in in your life. Noticing that, oh, when challenges being met, where's the caring? Really looking for that. I think it's almost always there. Even when we can't feel anything at all, that's indifference. And the indifference got created because we cared enough to save our hearts when we couldn't figure out any other way to do it. And it's just a habit playing out in this moment. I still think there's caring underneath. Interesting kind of postscript to the last talk I gave. I talked about the practice of using uh, sirens as a compassion practice. And this one time hearing a siren go by and having the thought, oh, someone's life has just changed today. My heart opening. Never knew who it was. Never knew anything about it. It's become one of my practices to just do that every time I hear a siren. To connect. Someone's life just changed today and it's probably not easy. It was very interesting. My last trip to the Bay Area was a couple weeks ago. And I was driving in West Marin. And there were a bunch of sirens. Fire truck went by. Another fire truck went by. Police car went by. Motorcycle police person came by. There was a lot of them. I kept pulling over and pulling over and pulling over. Doing my practice. But, you know, we just never know. So I was doing my practice the way I was doing my practice with sirens. And I turned around a corner, and they were all there with their lights flashing, and there wasn't a car there. I couldn't figure out why they were all right there. And as I drove by, I saw this big blanket on the ground. And there was no car there. There was no car involved in whatever happened, but there was a big blanket on the ground. And there was someone under that blanket. My heart heart. I don't know what happened there. 
I could tell you a story about what I think happened, but I don't know what happened. I know that there was a body under a blanket, and I know that the tears streamed down my face from there to my destination. And I don't know that person, but I was praying for them, and I was sending good wishes to their family that hadn't gotten the phone call yet, and really feeling that moment of, maybe I haven't gotten the phone call yet. Is this really separate from me and my life? Is it? Yes and no. And sometimes our hearts can open fully to that, and sometimes our hearts can't, and either way we can care tremendously, even when our heart is closed. The metaphor that I like to use for the compassionate heart is that the heart breathes in and the heart breathes out. And if we use breath as a metaphor, it's so interesting how when we breathe in, we don't say, oh, it's better to breathe in than to breathe out, you know. So when I breathe out, I'm going to judge myself, but when I breathe in, that's good. But we do that with the heart breathing in and breathing out because our hearts open and they close. And when they close, we sometimes do this thing, which is very cruel to ourselves. We say, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I should have an open heart. Why am I not caring? It's just the heart breathing in. And then it breathes out and it opens again. And then it breathes in. And contraction and expansion and contraction and expansion. And I think of that whole process as the same process of the heart awakening to compassion. And it includes that we completely contract and shut down. And then out of that, it's like the fist. You know, I'm using this this fist. If we hold on to this fist long enough, we feel how much it hurts, and we naturally open it up again. It's just naturally. You can't hold on to this forever. We can't hold on to our hearts that way forever either. And then they open. So we don't need to judge ourselves for that. I really think it's part of the whole process, same process. I'll leave you with the poem. I don't actually know who wrote this poem. If you would grow to your best self, be patient, not demanding, accepting, not condemning, nurturing, not withholding, self-marveling, not belittling, gently guiding, not pushing and punishing, for you are more sensitive than you know. Humankind is tough as war, yet delicate as flowers. We can endure agonies. And we do. But we open fully, only to warmth and to light. And our need to grow is as as fragile as a fragrance dispersed by storms of will to return only when those storms are still. So accept, respect, attend to your sensitivity. A flower cannot be opened with a hammer. It can't. So if there's one thing I would hope for you uh, with this experience that we all share, this experience of the heart awakening to compassion, it's just that you drink it in. 
and that you don't hammer yourself when it's not present in the moment because it's there. It's just waiting for the right conditions to flower again. So that's what I have to offer for your reflection. And I am curious about how you practice compassion in your life. And it doesn't have to be anything complicated or profound. Sometimes the simplest, most obvious things are the most easily accessible um, and helpful for you and for others to hear. So if anybody's feeling bold... Thank you. Okay, so you're talking about indifference or numbness and and somewhat indifference. And there's been a few deaths going around in my life. Uh, My aunt, Mm -hmm. and I I did have a beautiful connection with her, but I still felt indifferent to the fact that, very accepting of the fact that she died. And then um, my cousin's mom died and I was completely indifferent to that. Mm-hmm. And then a friend, I use the word loosely, his dad died and he was pissed off that I just wasn't like on and over him in his time of need. Mm-hmm. So I'm listening to your talk and I don't know, I just, I want to have compassion with myself for having this attitude towards death, but I've always had this attitude and I still don't feel like that I've had it show up on my doorstep with anybody ever that's made it so that I felt deeply wounded and I want to say well I'm just accepting that that's part of the package deal of life yeah 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 no maybe death is not your doorway for a big gushy response could that be okay I think it's fine you know and what I would ask you is uh, what is it in your life that does, you know, that that's that's challenging or, or painful. That that does make you go, oh yeah, I care about that. I I feel that. Anything come to mind? Well, the thing I get most wrapped up in is uh, love and relationships that are alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so when they have challenges, it's very real and very immediate. Yeah, I I do. I think that we have we each. It, and also in different cycles in our lives, have different doorways into what awakens the quality. And I don't think one thing is better than another. You know, so that's yours. And to nurture it there. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Who else? For uh, most of 2010, I guess, um, one of my primary meditation practices was a um, was a phrase I picked up from Jack Cornfield, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for for Brahma Vihara of compassion, mm-hmm. where I would say, um, and I would do this in various formats, sometimes just a sort of a during meditation as a concentration, almost a mantra kind of a thing, and sometimes just walking along wherever I was walk wherever I was. Yeah. But say something like so it would go like, um, may Heather be held in compassion. May she may her pain and suffering be eased. May she be at peace. May I be held in compassion. May my pain and suffering be eased. May I be at peace. May 
and I'd go through lists of people. Yeah. Um, and I, 2010 was kind of, there was, and it's always good things in life, but there were some, some painful relationships at work. And I would, would, every time I would, every time I would meditate, basically, I'd go back through all this, you know, people that were easy and friendly and close and people that were difficult. Mm-hmm. And I would get to be so, when I could walk down the halls in the office, and I would see these people, this phrase and this, this emotional response would just happen. Yeah. Of, okay, so there's, you know, there's stuff that's happening with them and there's stuff that's happening with me. And may we all be held in compassion. May pain and suffering of all of us be eased. May I be? May we all be at peace. Yeah. And interestingly enough, about that time, I also read um, after the ecstasy of the laundry. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I was doing this compassion practice during that time frame, and I every time I would come across the word compassion, I'd underline it for a while with a pencil. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever done that with that book, but it's hard to go two pages without the word compassion occurring again in that book. Yeah. It's a story of people and people and people and people. Yeah. And over and over and over again for a while, I, actually, I, I wrote down on the back cover of the book, every time there was a page number that had compassion, I wrote it down and I had like six lines of, ah. of little tiny numbers all the way across. The third, and yeah, that was only you know, two-thirds of the book when I started writing down the pages. Yeah. But it just... Um, uh, you know, and um, what Jack is just sort of so full of that. I remember he did the the Bodhisattva vows for his 30th birthday, mm-hmm. and he got um, uh, how, how did it go? He, he uh, um, everything was uh, he, he couldn't do the Bodhisattva vows the normal way. You know, sort of taking it so seriously. May may I take care of everybody? May I save everybody? Um, but uh, everything is uh, desires are are uh, how, how do you put this? Desires are, are endless. May I um, may I manifest humor in the world mm-hmm. <laughs> about about all the things that we get hung up on. Maybe we just learn to relax and take it easy. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, and and I love how you did it in your meditation practice you know, formally at home and then started walking through the hallways, you know, and, and made that bridge. And it's not always an easy bridge to make. So I also think that it's great that you did it as a whole year of practice, you know, instead of just doing it for a short period of time, really let it speak to you over a long period of time. I, I find myself when practices go on for longer like that, there's, there's whole cycles of things that are revealed that wouldn't be revealed if we just did it for a couple of weeks, you know. So thank you for sharing that. Somebody, uh, this will probably be the last one. Uh, so in the Walnut Creek uh, Tuesday night sangha, I uh, heard a, an ex-cop uh, talk about something which has aided me a huge amount called freeway meta. Yes. And. Um, and he noted that it used to be that he used to chase these guys, and now he sees them go by, and he offers a prayer for them. Mm. And I found that it does wonders for my for my peace of mind while I'm on the freeway to see somebody who is hot dogging in and out. And I used to get very oh, how can I do that around me? And and now I realize, oh, okay. Yeah. 
they they need a prayer said for them. And mm-hmm. so I say a prayer. Oh, thank you so much for reading that. And how many people have some sort of uh, driving or commuting loving kindness practice? Just curious. Yeah, highly recommended. I, I almost brought it up, but I'm glad that you did. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. Maybe it's time for one more if somebody has one more. Nobody does compassion practice in their daily life. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You just think it's not good enough to share or you're shy. Um, there's this thing that I do with my students. Um, I, I, I used to have, um, you know, um, some insecurity around my students. And um, I, I would, because my boss would put a lot of pressure on me and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I started, because I, I read this um, book on compassion by Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess he does this practice where he meditates uh, in one hand. He has... Uh, his own problems, yeah. and then in the other hand, he's got uh, everyone else's. Yeah. So I, I do that with my students, and then I, I find that um, I, I'm not focused on myself, and and I, I'm I, I'm very like I, I feel very loving towards uh, my students, and mm-hmm. it's um, it's something very nice for me because then I I enjoy teaching yeah. a lot more. Yeah. 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 Uh, thank you for sharing that one. That's a great practice. So we'll take a couple minutes to uh, share in a short compassion and offering the goodness of our practice time. As we each feel ourselves sitting here in this moment, we might want to take a moment to bring to mind some way that we've been challenged recently in our lives, as there's always some challenge or another. And as we take that in, Really breathing in on each inhale some good wishes for ourselves. So it might be something like, I care. I care about this pain. I care. I care about this pain. Or it might be something else. May I be at ease. But breathing it in. a sense of workability with whatever so. And one way we can offer the goodness or the merit of our time here together is to just shift our attention to the exhale and on each exhale Breathing out 
wishes for other people to have ease. Ease with their challenges. Ease with their suffering. Whatever kind of good wishes feel authentic to you, to breathe out to everyone in this room and beyond. And if there is anybody in your life that's having a particularly hard time, or any place on the planet that's having a particularly hard time that is vibrating your heart this evening, leave the opportunity for people to say those names or those places out loud so that we can all hear them. My sister. For those who were named, for those who were not named, may all beings have happiness and increasing causes of happiness. May all beings be as healthy as possible. May all beings be as safe as possible. And may we each have an increasing depth of ease of well-being in our lives. Thank you for your practice. And I look forward to seeing you again in the future.